This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dental infections, including dental caries and periodontal disease, are commonly seen by primary care providers in the outpatient setting. In fact, dental caries is the most common disease in the United States, both in children and adults. And it's thought that up to 50% of children have dental caries, and the vast majority of adults have at least one tooth with decay or have a filling. Gingivitis is also quite common in adults and is felt to be present in up to half of individuals between the ages of 35 and 45. As a result, the direct and indirect costs of dental infections are really significant to society. Yet, Unless we go into dentistry, as healthcare providers, we don't get much training in the evaluation of dental conditions. So today, hopefully, we're going to learn about dental care and dental infections from our guest, Dr. Olivia Muller, an assistant professor of dentistry at the Mayo Clinic. Liv, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to learning something about dentistry, because uh, as I mentioned, we get very little about the examination of the mouth and other conditions that can occur. So let's see what I can learn. This is a big issue though, isn't it? From the reading that I've done, this is significant. Yeah, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head in that most people have it. And it just depends on where they're at on the spectrum as far as how severe it is. Historically, it used to be a much bigger issue because there weren't a lot of treatment options for it. And you can imagine dental infections are very close to other important things like the brain and the breathing apparatus and all those things. So it used to be a huge cause of death, actually. And we've come a long way from there, but we haven't eliminated it. Yeah. Well, for what I've determined, there's a variety of conditions that fit in the category of dental infections. So let's start with a couple of them. Tell us a little bit about dental caries. To kind of preface this, there's an interesting distinction between what's a dental infection and what's a dental disease. I think this distinction exists all throughout medicine, but in general, the disease process are things that are existing there, but maybe going wrong. And then the infection are things that shouldn't be there, new bacteria, new growth in areas that it shouldn't be. So dental caries, which is synonymous with what patients are going to tell you cavities, is technically a disease process. I don't know if you could truly categorize it as an infection until it spreads and gets big enough to then cause an abscess, which causes an active infection and a swelling. So there's kind of a weird delineation of lines there. But in general, dental disease and dental infection tends to fall into two buckets. There's the caries and there's the periodontal disease. So the caries that you have alluded to is basically cavities. How do they develop? How do we get a dental carry? Yeah. Cavities in general are formed when there's an imbalance between this constant remineralization, demineralization process that it's a constant battle going on in your mouth. And every time you eat, it decreases the pH. So your acidity level in the mouth goes up and it triggers a demineralization process. And then as things get back to normal, you know, you rinse or your saliva just kind of takes over, it goes back to a normal 
mouth level pH and remineralization takes place. If the demineralization is higher and there's a certain level of karyogenic, basically bad bacteria contributing to this in certain areas or portions of the teeth, the remineralization is not happening as much and you start losing that battle and it starts to create a hole basically in the tooth, a literal cavity. Are there things that we eat or drink that are setting us up for a greater risk for caries? Absolutely. It all comes down to free sugars, simple sugars, and acids. Those are the two leading causes. Sugar in general can be very closely linked to cavity prevalence within populations. So if you look even worldwide, mid-level countries who have access to high sugars, free sugars, because they're easy and available and fairly cheap, they have the highest levels of caries rates versus other types of countries that either don't have access to those or have access to dental care on the other end of that have less caries rates because of that. So it's almost directly dose dependent. I know that we have a very uh, great affinity for uh, soft drinks in this country. (laughs) But I was also reading that even diet soft drinks can contribute to dental caries. And uh, if there's no sugar in there, what's happening there? That's the acid component of things. Ah, Yeah. You typically will still need some sugar somewhere, but usually you're not just drinking your soft drink. Maybe you have French fries with it, and that's a fairly simple carbohydrate as well. And so it's kind of a double whammy there. You're giving it the acid and the simple sugar. Well, let's change directions a little bit. Let's talk about gingivitis. What exactly is that? Plain and simple. It's exactly what it sounds like for medical terminology. It's inflammation of the gums. Pretty much that's largely bacterial induced as well. How do we get that? Basically, the bacteria like to hide in crevices and there's a gingival crevice around your teeth. And the longer that bacteria sits there and tries to make itself comfortable and hone its environment, the less your gums appreciate that. And basically you get localized inflammation in the area. And I assume that happens also more likely after we eat or drink something. Yep, absolutely. All right. What about periodontal disease? So that is the progression of gingivitis. All periodontitis technically will start with gingivitis. And periodontal disease is the next step up to that where the inflammatory process has been going on to a greater extent or to a longer extent even, and we start to get actual breakdown of the structure. So the periodontal ligament and the bone that holds the tooth there, those things start to erode and break down. So it's actually loss of the attachment mechanism that holds your teeth into your jaw. Well, you've mentioned things that we eat or drink, especially carbohydrates or acidic type foods. Are there other risk factors for developing dental infections? As far as caries and dental caries, that's very closely related to sugars and acids. As far as gingivitis and periodontitis, that's not so closely related to the sugars per se, but it's more closely linked to an inflammatory chronic process. Because of that, things that affect your body inflammatory process-wise also affect your mouth. So things like smoking are definitely tied to periodontal disease. Also things like obesity or other chronic systemic problems that are known to cause inflammatory problems are very closely linked with periodontal disease. It seems like 
as I've grown up, I've known people who've had a lot of carries um, and others have had hardly any. I mean, I've had, I think I've had one in the, my entire lifetime and I'm not sure I'm doing anything different than, you know, my neighbors. Why the big variation from one individual to another? That's a good question. And I wish I had a simple answer for that, but it's mostly because there are so many factors taking place here. Part of it, we can definitely lay on genetics and say some people have clear genetic predisposition to breakdown of the enamel or something like that. Part of it is normal flora. What is your microbiome that you've developed as a child? Microbiomes and normal flora developed really early on in infancy and and throughout your growth. And so if your mom, for example, has really good oral hygiene and doesn't have a lot of caries, chances are you're getting her oral microbiome to establish, right? Because she's blowing on your food, she's tasting your spoon, you're sharing that. And that's the type of bacteria that colonizes and establishes you as your normal baseline bacteria levels. And so those children tend to have lower caries rates. Whereas if your mom has active cavities, is getting treatment for them currently and is known to have them, chances are that there's higher levels of these cariogenic bacteria that are going to become your baseline that you have to counteract. Other things that play into it are obviously daily hygiene. Do you see your dentist for maintenance? Are you using fluoride toothpaste? Those sorts of things all kind of tip the balance one way or another in combination. Well, I guess we could put it in the same category as why some kids get a lot of ear infections and others get hardly any. So interesting topic. So in primary care, outpatient practice, what are we likely to see and what should we be looking for when we uh, examine a patient? Yeah. So what's interesting with primary care is you're going to see a lot of typical things as far as pain and swelling, right? Those are the the ones where you're going to be like, yep, there's pain and swelling clearly related to a tooth. I can give you some antibiotics, go see a dentist. Those are the baseline ones. But I think maybe the ones that primary care docs are more interested in are the ones that you might not think about. So referred dental pain is a pretty common thing. There's a lot of nerve pathways that pass through this head and neck region and they they cross and interact. And it's not uncommon to have dental pain where the patient says, oh, it's definitely coming from this lower back tooth. And you look and it's an upper back tooth and it's in a different location. This can be similarly referred as headaches or earaches or things like that. So if, for example, you have a patient that has, you know, recurring earaches and you can't figure out why, you know, you're going to make all your referrals to audiology and ENT and neurology and all of that, but it's not a bad idea to also refer them back to their dentist to make sure there's not a dental etiology at the same time. Similarly, recurrent sinusitis is a really common one. So the maxillary molars, which are kind of the back teeth in your mouth, their roots approximate really closely the maxillary sinus. So if you have a dental infection or an abscess at one of those teeth, it's very common and seen fairly frequently where it interacts with the maxillary sinus and you end up getting a sinus infection. And so if you have a patient with recurrent sinusitis, doesn't seem to go away, that's another reason to be like, hey, go get your teeth checked out also. Maybe it's not a sinus thing, it's a tooth thing. I remember, oh, this goes back quite a few years now. There was a uh, an association found between periodontal infections and atherosclerotic vascular disease. I haven't heard yeah. much about that lately, but is that still 
felt to be the case? Yeah, that's a tricky one because there is without question a correlational link. There's for sure evidence to show that if you have high levels of periodontal disease and you have high levels, therefore, of C-reactive protein, for example, which is, you know, an inflammatory marker systemically, it correlates very closely with high levels of atherosclerosis. The question then becomes, is there a causational relationship? How tightly are they bound? Does changing one affect the other? And I think those are a little bit more tenuous, a little bit more unknown yet. However, there's a lot of literature exploding on the topic of oral systemic disease links. And it's not just atherosclerotic vascular disease, it's diabetes, it's pregnancy, poor outcomes or uh, low birth rates, early labor, preeclampsia, almost anything that you can relate to a systemic inflammatory process is almost being linked also to periodontal disease because they have similar systemic problems as far as inflammation. The treatment of periodontal disease in improving the CRP or the C-reactive protein, it does improve. And so we have some studies on that where if you do your scaling and root planing, which is the gold standard frontline treatment for periodontal disease, you will, after a few months, see a decrease in those systemic inflammation markers. And it's statistically significant. The question remains, is it significant enough to also improve your atherosclerotic vascular disease risk factors? And I don't know if that's really been proven. I think the decrease is pretty mild. And so there are other things that would help a lot more. If you quit smoking, your risk factors are going to go down a lot more than if you get your teeth cleaned, basically. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a link. I know the mouth has a lot of bacteria in it. And at one point, we used to recommend SBE prophylaxis, even with teeth cleaning, if somebody had various conditions like uh, mitral valve prolapse, that's changed now, but bacteremia can result in some of these infections, right? And potentially cause endocarditis and other uh, serious infections, right? Yeah, that's actually changed. You know, I've been in the dental field for about a decade and it's changed at least twice since I've been practicing. So it's definitely a, a hotter topic. As of now, basically only the highest risk patients for getting endocarditis complications are the ones that we prophylax prior to dental procedures. So that includes an unrepaired or incompletely repaired congenital defect, a prosthetic heart valve, a cardiac transplant with valvulopathy, or a history of endocarditis. Most of these other things we don't prophylax for, at least anymore. And the side note to the bacteremias is a lot of what we're doing dentally, yes, we're manipulating the gum tissue and the periodontium and those sorts of things, but bacteremia has been shown in those patients who have periodontal disease just by brushing their teeth. And you're not going to prophylax someone every time they brush their teeth in the morning because the risks outweigh the benefits at that point. So I think that's one of the reasons we've backed off a little bit on the prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, what should we be telling our patients in order to promote good oral and dental health? What should we be recommending to them? The stuff you hear as the benchmarks are tried and true. So good home care and oral hygiene, flossing, 
brushing, using a fluoride toothpaste. Those are all the staples that that baseline will improve their oral care. On top of that, six-month checks with their dentist, annual follow-ups just for exams, and just staying on top of things. These are usually slow-growing, slow-changing problems. Most periodontal disease, for example, takes years to show more and more tooth loss. It doesn't happen overnight. And so usually if you catch things early, you can get ahead of it. So it's all about prevention. Okay. You mentioned fluoride. What role does fluoride play in preventing dental infections? The simple answer is it strengthens the teeth. The long-winded answer is in that ongoing remineralization, demineralization conundrum that your mouth is constantly facing, it makes it harder for demineralization to take place. So enamel, for example, is made of hydroxyapatite, strongest surface in your body, stronger than bone. When you get the demineralization happening, it's releasing calcium and phosphate ions. Those are the ones that are being demineralized. And then as things become back to a more normal pH and it starts to remineralize, fluoride is then added as one of those ions. So instead of just picking up calcium and phosphate, you're also picking up fluoride. So instead of hydroxyapatite, you're now getting fluorohydroxyapatite. And the acidity level that it takes to start dissolving that is greater. So at this point, now it's going to be harder to start the demineralization process. Another question. I've always wondered this, and I don't know if this has anything to do with dental infections or not, but what exactly is a root canal? Sure. So say yeah. they're going to have a root canal and I know it's not something pleasant, but I have no idea what it is. What yeah. happens in a root canal and why do people need it? Basically, the root canal is filling the pulpal chamber. The pulp canal consists of the tooth's blood supply and nerve supply. And what happens if, for example, a cavity or a caries gets too large, it then communicates with and touches that nerve chamber. And that bacteria now has a pathway into your blood supply and down through the tooth. And what happens is the bacteria spreads through that channel. It ends up necrosing or uh, irreversible pulpitis for the tooth, in which case it cannot be brought back at that point. The only way to treat that infective process is to actually clean out the entire pulp chamber. You remove the nerve and blood supply. You then almost uh, file out or clean out all the affected tooth structure that has been infiltrated with that bacteria, and then you do a filling. So in a sense, you can think of it like a filling, but it's filling the root structure, not just the cavity that you have in the tooth part that you can see. Well, that confirms my suspicion. I do not want a root canal. Uh, <laughs> one last question, and this has nothing to do with dental infections, but how do dentists deal with the fear of going to the dentist? Um, I'm a good patient. I go in twice a year. It's not something I look forward to. In fact, the uh, oral hygienist takes my blood pressure and my blood pressure is normally well controlled, but not there. She takes it at the wrist. And I know that's not correct, but I'm about not about to correct her because <laughs> she's going to stick sharp things in my mouth. But how do you deal with patients who have this fear of going to the dentist? Is there any recommendations of things we should be promoting? That's tough. The problem that I think exists with dentistry and the fear is you're in a very vulnerable position. And like you said, someone has a bunch of sharp instruments in an area that you can't see, you can't watch what they're doing, and it just comes down to trust. 
And so I think most dentists would say that they try to build on that relationship and that trust and that understanding that they're going to be doing everything that they can as best that they can. And the more trust you have with that patient, the less anxious you end up being. We try to give as much control back to the patient as we can. For me, for example, I always ask, is it okay if I lean your chair back? Is, can we start now? And so, you know, giving control where we can give control in a very uncontrolled environment for the patient, I think is one of my strategies, but it's a tough one because a lot of the time, the ones who are really, truly anxious, they don't show up and there's nothing I can do to help that if they're not there. So that's, I say from a primary physician standpoint, the best you can do is just encourage them to go and encourage them to just be present because the more we see them, the earlier we see them, the less scary it will be because the less problems they'll have. Well, Liv, I've learned a lot about dental infections. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points of importance? One is that there's a lot of oral and systemic links that are continually being found and established. There's a definitive link with diabetes. There's definitely a link with cardiovascular disease. Again, how much they affect back and forth is a little bit more questionable, but I think we should keep an eye out on the literature as that continues to evolve and progress. As a primary provider, keeping in the back of your mind that dental could be an etiology for certain things, such as referred pain, headaches, earaches, sinusitis is probably a good idea. I think that's about it. All right. Well, we've been discussing dental infections with Dr. Olivia Muller from the Department of Dentistry at the Mayo Clinic. Liv, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It's been fun and uh, you taught me quite a bit. Well, thank you for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.